I've been thinking a lot over the last week and a half about thresholds, thresholds, about doorways, about openings and closings and places where we enter and where we exit, homes, life, time, space, all of it. And thresholds are a key component of understanding a rarely known and oft, even if known, rarely understood minor technicality about Hanukkah. So much of Hanukkah is about, let's start from the beginning, the why of lighting candles. There's a story for that. There's the how many of the candles. There's a story for that too. There's the way in which we light the candles. And then there's not just the story, not just how many, but where we light them takes up a lot of space in the Talmud. The Talmud discusses where we place the menorah, the Chanukiah, where we place the candelabra that we light the candles, its placement somehow significant and an essential core component of understanding what Hanukkah is all about. The Talmud says that we should mitzvah it is a mitzvah, it is a commandment, it is a practice, it is the way of things for us. When we light the candle, to place it in the courtyard facing the public sphere. And then when the Talmud digs down into that a little bit more deeply, it actually says, no, really, mitzvah, petach beito. It's actually a mitzvah, it's a practice to place it in the opening of your actual doorway itself. The Talmud says, well, where should one place it in the doorway? And answers the Talmud, let it be on the left side of your doorway when you enter, so that the mezuzah is on the right, and the menorah is on the left. How many people here knew that? Very few, right? Our custom is, of course, not to place it there. The Talmud goes on to say that if there was ever a point where making such a public statement about Hanukkah was actually dangerous for Jews, then fine, place it on your, on your table inside, vidayo, it's okay. But mi'ikaradin, from the essence of the mitzvah, there's something between Hanukkah and mezuzah. There's something about that little parchment that we place as a reminder of leaving Egypt, and something about its mirror image on the other side, called the menorah, that also acts as a kind of mezuzah, a kind of anchor for the doorway. So I'm thinking about thresholds. I'm thinking about it also because we're on a threshold this weekend. As we come to the end of the calendrical year 2016, we are on the cusp of saying goodbye. And Hanukkah beautifully now dovetails with that goodbye. And so does the Parsha. The Parsha, which is named Miketz, Miketz Shnataim Shanan. It was at the end of two years, and Joseph was taken from the pit. But the word itself, miketz, means at the end of, on the cusp of, as it came to a close. So I learned a little bit about miketz, the cusp of, the threshold of, from a little-known source, from Will Chamberlain. 
And another great basketball player that many of you here would know, many of you will not, and you'll definitely age yourselves in that way, Rick Barry. I listened to a podcast by a great thinker named Malcolm Gladwell. He has a wonderful podcast that I recommend called Revisionist History. And in one episode called The Big Man Can't Shoot, he basically meditates on a puzzle, which is why is it that smart people do stupid things? Why is it that excellence is such a difficult and elusive goal, even when we have the best of intentions? And he learns it from Will Chamberlain and Rick Barry. The story is, of course, that Will Chamberlain was the, maybe arguably the greatest center, the greatest basketball player of his era, of any era, and arguably had the greatest basketball game any individual basketball player ever had, where he scored 100 points. And in that game, Will Chamberlain, who was notoriously a horrible free-throw shooter, for those who don't know anything about sports, which is unbelievable, <laughs> a free-throw is Kishmo Kainu. A free-throw is you stand 15 feet from the hoop and you shoot a free shot. No one is blocking you. Now, Will Chamberlain could score with 18 people draped on him, but when he was at the free-throw line with nobody around him, he had a percentage of something close to 35% which meant that all you had to do to stop him from scoring was foul him. Because if he was standing at the foul line, he couldn't score. We're talking about 25 points to 30 points a game. In the game in which he scored 100 points, he made 28 free throws. Do you know how he made those 28 free throws out of 32? Do you know how? He shot the ball underhand. Rick Barry, of course, is the one who made underhand free-throw shooting famous. He started as a young man shooting in that way because it felt like the most natural way to have the most control over the ball as it left your body. He would relax his body, and he would shoot the ball with a flick of the wrist, with a backward spin, which, of course, gave it a greater option, a greater chances of going into the rim. Now, why is this important for Hanukkah? We'll get to that. <laughs> But here's the story. Here's the story. His father, meaning Rick Barry's father, introduced him to the underhand foul, th foul shot, free throw. The most accurate and basketball free throw shooter of all time, Rick Barry. And when his father introduced it to him, do you know what he said? He said, Dad, I'm not going to do it. And he said, why, Rick? And Rick said, because... People will make fun of me. People will say I shoot like a grandmother. People will say that I don't know how to shoot. There's a right way to shoot the ball and a wrong way. And I'm apparently doing it in a sissy way. Those were his words. I'm being a sissy. And he said he remembered what his father said to him. His father said to him, if you make the shots, they'll shut up. So Rick Barry taught Will Chamberlain to shoot the ball underhand. And you would think that's the end of the story, but it's not. Because after that season, Will Chamberlain went back to shooting the basketball the way he was normally, even though he had such success. And you know what happened? His percentage dropped. People estimate that he might have scored 20 points more a game in his career had he shot the ball underhand. And when asked in an interview why he stopped shooting the ball underhand, Will Chamberlain said, you know, I have to admit, it worked. But I didn't, I didn't feel like a man when I was shooting the ball that way. 
It didn't feel right to me, and people made fun. A grown man, a legend on the court, who would have been arguably the greatest player because of perception, because he felt that he would be perceived in a certain way, was not willing to do what was so rational, so logical, so obvious. Anyone, anyone would have said, what are you, crazy? Shoot the ball underhand. Who cares? Now, lest you think only Will Chamberlain and athletes succumb to this, there's a great sociologist, says Gladwell. A great sociologist whose name is Mark Granovetter, a great American sociologist, professor at Stanford University, who has a theory called the threshold theory of social compulsion and social behavior. He argues that unlike my brother, who in our, new, in our high school yearbook wrote for his quote, don't stick with the herd, you might wind up a lamb chop. <laughs> it isn't the masses and mass hysteria that actually is the compulsion, is the essential core ingredient that determines our behaviors. It isn't whether or not millions of people are doing it and we get caught up in it. It's not that we get caught in mass mind. He argues, no, threshold is the number or proportion of others who must make a decision before a given actor does so. A threshold is the number or proportion of others who must take an action before I decide I will take an action. And for each and every individual, a threshold is different. Each and every individual has their number. As he Malcolm Gladwell says in his podcast, a grandmother throwing a stone at some protest might seem so far-fetched for that individual, but it's only a matter of time before the threshold is crossed. It's not the number, the mass number, but what is your threshold number, he writes. In other words, if you have a high threshold, others have to go and do it a million times before you'll be willing to do it. Will Chamberlain had a high threshold. He couldn't contain that other people, he couldn't allow that other people would make fun of him. So he had to make sure that there would be a hundred other people shooting the ball in a sissy way so that he would feel comfortable doing it. He wasn't an early adopter. Or you might say that it was less important for him to make free throws than it was that people would perceive him in a certain way, yeah? It was more important for him to be perceived in a certain way than it was for him to do what would logically make sense for him to succeed. How stupid is that? It's not. We all do it. We all do it. If you look at the story of Judah and Joseph in the Torah tomorrow morning and throughout this time of the year, every single year, it always coincides with Hanukkah. It is the story of individuals and groups. It is the story of a group of brothers who band together as B'nai Israel for the first time. They are called the children of Israel. The first time there is a cohesive unit. And they plot against one individual. One individual had the audacity to stand out. And one individual named Yosef, Joseph, becomes the scapegoat. We know the story. But the story of Joseph is not about Joseph. It's about Judah. Judah, the fourth child of Leah, who in chapter 38, just as Joseph is descending into Egypt, Judah separates himself from his own brothers. The only two of the 12 brothers who separate from the clan. Judah also goes down as Joseph goes down to Egypt. 
And there Judah, in his own experience, gets married, has three sons, and two of them die. And Judah learns the hard way through an amazing woman named Tamar that it's more important to be right than it is to be seen. Because what does Tamar do? We all know the story. Tamar takes the law into her own hands. Judah, who has three boys, and as the levirate practice was, right, the first boy died, the second boy married Tamar. And then the second boy died, and the third boy should marry Tamar. And Judah said, no, you can't have my third son, Shelah, whose name means belonging to her, Shelah. And instead, Judah decides to hold tight to his son. He does the wrong thing. And Tamar takes the law into her own hands and she dresses up by the side of the road. We all know the story. And Judah gives her all of the collateral that is necessary in order to proposition his daughter-in-law, not knowing she was his daughter-in-law. And of course, their union leads to two children, Zerach and Peretz. And at the moment when Judah is told that his daughter-in-law has cheated, She's acted illicitly. Judah has a moment where he can either admit what is true and what is right, or he can save face in front of everyone, right? And what does Judah do? Judah says, she's right. Judah is willing to step out of the story. Judah is willing to stand alone against the brothers. Judah is willing to take responsibility. Judah is the hero of the story because Judah has a very low threshold. Judah could care less. Judah, it doesn't matter to Judah if his brothers will accept him. Judah will be all by himself, all the way in the land that he chose. Judah doesn't care about likes. His Facebook page is not pinned up with whether or not hundreds of millions of people will like him. He's less interested in likes and likability and more interested in light and right. What's just, what's true. He's an early adopter. He'd be the first one to say, you know what? doesn't matter. That's Judah. Judah has a low threshold. He knows what it is not just to be caught up by the masses, but to stand alone if need be. To stand alone against. To stand alone. Be a person. Even if everyone else will tell you something, you stand alone in your truth, Judah. Even if all the brothers are conspiring against Joseph, Judah has a plan. Even if everybody is saying, you know what? I'm not going to volunteer until four other people volunteer. How many people know people like this? I'm not coming to shul unless I go with four other people to shul. Now, we're all social beings. It's true. We don't want to go somewhere alone. I don't like going places alone necessarily. I wasn't one of those people that would, like, in a, in a confessional way, say, you know, I used to eat dinners by myself. I was my own best friend. <laughs> it's not easy. But Judah is willing to do what's right even if it's not popular. Even if it means standing alone as the only one, he does what's right. Because it's not about like, it's about light. So you stand for what's true. Now, it isn't easy. People want others to go first. 
People want to know that it's okay before they try it. Even when we know something is good for us, we still do stupid things. It's almost impossible not to. But here we are, everybody, at the end of 2016. We are standing on the precipice of a new year. We are at the threshold. And we don't light the candles anymore next to the mezuzah, but here's what I think is happening. The mezuzah tells us that we got out of Egypt by being one of many. Forever, the mezuzah became the symbol of joining the collective of the Jewish people. If you wanted to convert in ancient Israel, you didn't go to a rabbi, you slaughtered a Paschal offering and you put it on your doorpost and said, I'm part of this people. And then on the other doorpost is an other mezuzah. It says, I am not a part of this people. I stand on my own light. That's why we light one candle first day because the power of one, one person, one group, one leader who stands regardless of what other people say, regardless of whether or not it's silly or sissy or too ideal and idyllic. Let's be realistic, they should have said to Yehuda. Joseph's done for, and Judah says, uh uh The power of Judah, who learned in his own presence what it is to stand alone like that jar of oil and standing at every doorpost, at every threshold, and saying, are you more concerned with like or light? Can you stand alone in your own truth? for the sake of that which is ultimately better for you and for others, that is our test going forward. It will be a small band of people in this country and in other places around the world who will say, we know the truth, it doesn't matter how popular something becomes, we will not like it. We will not give into it. We will shine the light of truth. We will stand up for and stand in for and stand on that doorpost with our hand on the mezuzah and saying, we belong to a larger group and we will stand alone like Abraham once did, called the Ivri, who stood on one side and the whole world would be on the other side and Abraham would say, I'm on the side, it's good. You guys go, you're good. I got it. That's the power of the menorah. That's the power of a threshold. That is the power of being a Jew, D-N. To stand up even if the whole world says something is true, we say no. So tonight, and as we enter into what is called 2017 and what we know as the rest of the year, because we already had our new year, right? We had our new year. But according to the mystics, the Hasidic teachers, Hanukkah is the end of the new year. So it works out just right. <laughs> I'm praying for myself tonight and for all this community for yichidim, for individuals who are less concerned with whether or not many others are doing it, who are less concerned with the likability factor and more attuned to the lightability factor, to be able to stand at the threshold and to lower mine, to lower my threshold Blessed is the source of life who has given us the practice of lighting candles 
on the threshold. 